I tried keeping a diary once, not chronologically, of course, but the trouble with time travel is one never seems to find the time. I'm Chris Bivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today on Journalist, we talk about the greatest episode of the Peter Davison Doctor Who run. Oh, wait, no, we're talking about Caves of Anzandrani. <laughs> If wow. you could have seen the look on Eddie's face when I added that slash bit in. Wow. Wow. I, so what is the greatest Peter Davison story in your opinion? <laughs> in my humble opinion, the greatest Peter Davison episode is Time Crash when he bumps into David Tennant and they have a funny moment with the TARDIS. Okay. Now, now see, now we're, we're, we're shifting the goalposts. <laughs> so I know that this is a highly rated episode of the show. Everyone loves it. It gets on all sorts of like best of list. It is a good episode. I don't think it's a great episode. So I'm going to, I'm coming in hot this morning. Fair enough. I mean, I, in a way it's kind of indicative of the Davison run as a whole in the sense that there are very few just standout classic stories in his run. And honestly, it's genuinely seen as it, between the temples of both Bakers, right? The, the highly acclaimed, everyone loved Tom Baker, and the highly reviled, everyone hates Colin Baker. So Peter Davidson kind of gets lost in, in the conversation, and he has a lot of stories that are just kind of okay. Indrazani has a lot going for it, particularly because it was written by... And I just immediately lost his name. The esteemed Robert Holmes. Yes, Robert Holmes, um, who, who did, did a lot of good work in Tom Baker's run. So, But you know what? The, the script is good. But the reason, in my opinion, it hit so well is I forgot his name now, how you did that. It's the <laughs> direct directorial debut of this director who shot the show differently and had more motion in engagement with the piece than almost any other episode of Doctor Up to date. Like that direction is why this episode still stands so strongly as it does. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. Graham Harper. Thank you. I had to look it up. With, without Harper, the script's solid and it's good. It's good Holmes work. Holmes makes good to great to eh, because he also did a, God, what's that one called? Tom Baker, key to time. It's where with the on the swamp planet with the large monster. God. That narrows it down. That totally narrows it down. Doctor Who it's, on a swamp planet with a large monster. That's just well. I said like, I said key to time. Twenty percent Doctor monster, Who. When the monster <laughs> has like swallowed the key to time, it is so bad. It is so bad, and how they treat indigenous people, and it is obnoxious. Is, is, is that the one with the monster's giant penis? I don't remember. That doesn't narrow it down either for Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, you're right. And, and it's actually, it was interesting for me to look at both Earthshock and Kay's Vandrazani kind of together because I had given a lot of stick to Earthshock of like, it's trying so hard to be this big action piece and just kind of fail except he's good at. This is the other side of that, right? It's like, there's some action here, 
but it, by limiting scope, by bringing things down to more ground level, literally because underground, <laughs> it, it makes the action that's here feel better. Even though it's the exact same budget and a lot of the same people, the action feels a lot better. I'm sure Graham Harper also certainly helps to make that look co more convincing than it did in Earthshock for me. Well, I think part of that also is they didn't have to spend the special effects to draw in the little circles for the energy weapons when they shot them. Woo! Yeah, there's, Uzis, there's something but visceral. Also lasers. <laughs> there, there's something more visceral about just like a physical bullet and getting to hear it. And since it's so close where we are, we can imagine more of it. So you get more of a give from your audience. Right, right, right. Is there anything particularly you want to touch on for the backstory of it? Because I have a few tidbits, but not a lot. Because part of me now wishes that we'd actually done enlightenment because I think enlightenment might've been a better conversational piece to compare to earth shock than actually what the caves is, but caves is so important and monumental. It feels like it should have been the one we cover because everyone talks about it. Right. So let's, let's, I guess, assuming this isn't one of your tidbits, the one of the big kind of anecdotes about this is that Peter Davison has said repeatedly in interviews that if he had gotten scripts like this prior to announcing his retirement, he probably stayed on longer as a doctor. I've always been a little eh about that because he's also separately said that uh, he only stayed on for three years because Patrick Troughton told him that was the length of time that a doctor should stick around. So these seems kind of at odds with each other. Uh, is it because of the quality of scripts? Is it because you're only supposed to do three years, whatever? But if nothing else, he's certainly repeatedly gone on record saying that this is one of the his favorite scripts and one of his favorite stories so that does give this a certain amount of uh emphasis in in the kind of the fan mindset and to your earlier point though about him just sort of being considered stuck between two bakers i think this may be the only time that has happened but when tom baker regenerates into peter davis in the credits it lists tom baker first here when peter davison regenerates to colin baker it lists colin baker first so he right. doesn't even get the credit of having really existed how the other doctors have. And also, when I regenerate into Pierre Davison, uh, Tom, that's the end of Tom Baker's last season. And so it's got a nice kind of end point for his run. Uh, there's several months between the next season, so people can kind of take time to celebrate and, to be honest, a little bit mourn uh, Tom Baker no longer being in the role before Pierre Davison can get the ground running. And this one, the next episode, next week, we watch The Twin Dilemma. So um, Peter well, Davis is basically out the kind of shoved out the door. Well, we, we didn't watch The Twin Dilemma because I refuse well, no. that nonsense. <laughs> well, right. We in the, the, the cultural sense, not we specifically, um, because uh, no one should watch The Twin Dilemma. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not good. And something like that hasn't happened since um, Hartnell regenerated into Troughton. Yeah, in the middle of the season. Mm -hmm. And that is because Hartnell had health issues. And I'm curious why Davison's did like that. I actually know that because the idea was that basically John Nathan Turner listens to fan bullshit. Uh, a, lot of people, a lot of vocal fans were down on Davison's portrayal because uh, they didn't understand it. We talked about that last episode, so I'll reiterate that. And so he wanted to make sure that the fans at the end of the season were left with what he thought was going to be a stronger, more iconic doctor. 
And so that way, rather than spending the entire time between seasons complaining about Davison, they would be excited about Colin Baker. History has proven that to be otherwise. <laughs> because JNT did not understand the inherent contradiction of fans is that the second Davidson had regenerated fans immediately, oh, I love Davidson. He was great. Why did you get rid of him? Because that's just how these things work. It, are, are you saying that he succumbed to social media instead of sticking to his artistic guns? Is that what you're telling me? Effectively, yeah. I mean, it, it, different media, but I mean, the, the the fan press, for lack of a better term, really shaped the direction creatively of where he was going and to its detriment. In, I am curious, though, which is this is more of just a, a thought project thought now, is that how could you have shaped and created Davidson's Doctor and not expected it to have re- received at least vocal negative feedback from a number of fans who were used to the bombast that was Tom Baker? Well, honestly, and, and again, we mentioned last episode, but but Davison had a raw hands. I mean, there there's really no way out, and he did the thing he could do, which is make it his own and try to work with material he had to carve something interesting out that wasn't evocative of previous performance, and it, it it just didn't kind of work out um, for him. Combined with the fact that, frankly, he was paired with an inappropriate script editor, right? <laughs> because Eric Sayward did not want to do the kinds of stories that Peter Davison was geared for. We And we see the kind of stories that Eric Sayward wants to do more clearly when he's doing Colin Baker stories, and it's it's not good, but there's at least a pairing of intent there. Like Colin Baker's Doctor and Eric Sayward's style match better, regardless of quality, than Peter Davison and Eric Sayward did. So if you can imagine like some of the the Bidmead era stuff, early, you know, Davidson, if there had been more of that, I think honestly Davidson probably would have been a stronger doctor. Um we kind of skipped over the early Bidmead era Davidson stuff because he's still something into the role and, and by the time he settles in, we switched uh script editors. But you know, if you can imagine like a whole other season of something like Enlightenment, uh, you know, I think Peter Davison would have settled into that quite nicely. Enlightenment is kind of that weird uh, uh, edge case of you know more cerebral, more character-driven, more intricate dynamics uh, of personality that he's really geared towards. He's not geared towards the the more bombastic sci-fi storytelling that clearly chunks of the production team wanted to do. Do you remember who the script editor was for the horror of Fang Rock with a uh, Baker? Pretty sure Horror of the Fang Rock was no, it, it, it would have been right before the changeover to to Graham Williams. Um, so it was probably uh, why am I blanking on his name now? Regardless, I think if there that script editor had also been there for Davison, that is another genre that Davison probably could have excelled in. Right, exactly. And it was also Robert Holmes, actually. So there you go. To bring back around to Caves of Androzani, I think yeah. that's probably why this this feels better is because Robert Holmes's aesthetic is a because because we haven't talked much about Robert Holmes. Robert Holmes is a bitter, angry man. Aren't we all? He is, yes, that's probably why I like him so much. He's very creative and, and he writes uh, very what I like to think of as low rent characters in the sense of he comes up with this really interesting sci fi concepts and po- polices them with very 
uh, working class characters. Uh, so again, to compare to Earthshock, Earthshock is full of, of space marines and corporate heads and archaeologists, and this is basically full of miners, you know. And so it's like miners just trying to do a job and being screwed over by corporate execs and politicians. So that kind of weariness and we can't escape the own inertia of our own pettiness works really well with Davison's character with, with Tom Baker. He handles it by just literally acting it off screen, right? It's just, I'm just more bombastic than capitalism and it somehow works <laughs> with, with Davidson. He gets that kind of balance of optimistic and world weariness and alien viewpoints that synergizes really well in something like caves of androzani so uh you get that glimpse of yeah what would it what would a davison era under robert holmes looked like it looks kind of like this i think that would have been spectacular especially if they could have without say word there oh god yeah so not to not to harp on that so we can we can transition away from it <laughs> barely to be fair, we, we, we spent so much time <laughs> hitting GNT with a stick last episode. We didn't really talk too much about Eric Saver except for in passing. Um, so, Rick, Chris, tell us about Eric Saver. <laughs> I was going to wait until we're more properly into Eric Sayer for the Sixth Doctor. Oh, fair. That's fair. Kind of how we waited for JNT until we're solidly into the Fifth Doctor. Wait a minute. That means I have to deal with it again. Wait a minute. I see what you did there. It's all like it's a cunning plan. And you know what I got to say? I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> um, all right. I will not do the A-Team theme song. Too early in the morning for that. The other part that I'll bring up that's funny is that in interviews, Davison pointed out that while he loved the regeneration scene and everything that he was doing there, he couldn't stop noticing that he was directly in Perry's bosom the entire time. And he, yeah. he brought it up in multiple interviews and how he's like, I'm trying to act and do my thing. And she's like hitting me and it's, ah. And it's honestly, that moment is kind of the perfect analogy for this chunk of Doctor Who, right? It, it, yep. It's, he's trying his damnedest to act people off the screen. And it's this very poignant moment. And it's, it's very clear, intentional direction from the crit, from the team, somewhere on the team, very likely JNT. They go, no, no, lean over more, lean over more, open your shirt more. And it's just, oh, it's exhausting. And what's frustrating, even more frustrating is that this is Perry's second episode. Let's talk about Perry a little bit, actually, Nicola Bryant. Perfect Gilliam Brown. Gilliam Brown. This is her second episode. And this is the best she, material she gets, and it's not good. Right? What? Do you, you mean this Bostonian actress? Bostonian. Oh God, she's so British. Because I it, think it, she was supposed to be from Boston, if I remember right. Yeah, from she Planet of Fire with her uncle, cousin, boyfriend. I don't remember who it was. That was with yeah. her on the boat. Yeah, like literally one of her first scenes is she's in a bikini. That tells you pretty much everything you know about how production felt about Perry. And. Nicola Bryant is not a bad actor. I mean, she's been, again, we always say this, but she's done a lot of big finish stuff since then, and she's proven there's actually a lot of depth there. And she's also been in other unrelated to Perry things that she's quite good in. 
but it was very clear what she was hired for. And to Nicola Bryant's credit slash detriment, she knew that going in to a degree. How she was treated afterwards is abominable. We've talked about that. I'm not going to go into it again. That was unacceptable. But mm-hmm. she recognized that at least some of the reason why she was hired was because of her physical attractiveness. And so she knew kind of what the role was going to be. It wasn't until she got a glimpse of this script going, oh, I could do more. I would like to do more. And then she was denied that kind of the the rot sets in, if you will. Yes. That's also one of the reasons that I, this is not a favorite episode of mine. And mm-hmm. I'd forgotten that to some extent until I started rewatching it and seeing what Perry got to do throughout this episode. Right. And if we're going to go into it, we, I can start the synopsis unless there's anything else you'd sure. like. Sure, no, Let's on. go into it because I have some more thoughts, but it makes us talk about them in context. I will say though, since we touched briefly on Robert Holmes before we move on is that either because of him or during some of his writing pieces, that's where we got Liz, the third doctor, an array of like staples of doctor who, but this is his first episode with a regeneration. Yeah. Yeah. And also, if I remember correctly, I could be misremembering this, but he was high. This is like, well, I think this is like one of, if not his last Doctor Who script. But he was hired kind of in an emergency because I think the other script fell through. And so they said, we need someone who's got experience writing Doctor Who to write this. And so he's not quite writing for Davis in here. He's writing for basically his memory of, of Tom Baker. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up, actually, because one of the things was is that JNT, we mentioned last time, I think, axed all the old writers and everything else for the mm-hmm. show. He didn't want any of them to come back. So that's why, even regardless of everything that Holmes has done, this is his first time coming back. And when mm-hmm. he wrote the script, he didn't write it for Davison. He wrote it for Baker, I think, is in yep. some of the interviews he said. Mm-hmm. So it is funny to see how well this suits Davison compared to, I don't think it would have suited Baker at all. Like, it would have, no. eh. No, because uh, what's um, – and uh, actually, I'm glad we brought that up because um, I, 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 we'll probably talk about it in specific moments during the, the recap, but as a general trend, you can almost – if you go into the episode knowing that, you can, there are certain lines you can kind of hear Baker say, but Davison's delivery is so completely different. And as a result of that, you can start to see how different this character is. And again, it's frustratingly how much better – it would have been like so let's take a step back real quick how doctor who writing goes a lot of people write for there's kind of a generic doctor right a, a, a generic doctor who's a little weird has a couple of jokes and does generic good stuff and after watching a lot of doctor who, you can start to see kind of the generic doctor scripts especially early on in a run like you know early tenant was kind of written for generic doctor early but eddie what about his fighting hand so generically generic doctor but which makes sense there's a really you know how the characters played the character you know the actor's time to to ease into the role so on so forth Uh, and then there are scripts that were written for a different doctor that are sometimes written sometimes not uh, and a new doctor has to kind of parse those scripts. We don't see much of that in the new or new, new run, but we do see it a few times there. And this is one example of that. And uh, sometimes weirdly, 
an actor trying to play another doctor's script ends up showing you more about that doctor. Actually, the third doctor's first script was kind of written with uh, Troughton-ish in mind. And by watching Pertwee kind of navigate those Troughton-ish eras and give his own stamp on it, you actually get a, a better look at what the third doctor's going to look like as a result of that. So it's this weird thing of like writing specifically for not that character can end up actually helping shape that character more. It's just weird that the fifth doctor gets at the end of his run right in the beginning. So a couple of other quick points for that is if you want a, a snippet of what that might've been like, there are recordings now of other doctors doing their takes on some of the speeches like the Pandorica opens and other yeah. things that are exceptional to listen to, to hear the seventh doctor doctor give the Pandora open speech is significantly different than listening to Matt Smith, give that same speech. So you mm -hmm. can see where they put their inflections and how their personality shines through. But it also just wasn't for the doctors where scripts were blank. It was also for the companions. I remember yeah. it was Louise Jameson saying that when she was reading scripts, they were still written for Sarah Jane and it would say, uh, Leela screams here. And she's like, Leela doesn't scream. Right. Leela stabs, punches, kills. And so she had to adjust things on the fly because they weren't writing for her character. Yep. That's a good, really good point. Um, and, and that's actually one of the reasons why Perry's so frustrating because she is basically a generic companion and never leaves that role. Even when we get more into Perry next season, because it's just yep. her and Colin pretty much the whole time. Yep. Until we have different Mel. companions the rest of Colin Baker's run. What? You don't think Melanie is significantly different? Melanie likes fitness. That is an entire personality that you can revolve yourself around. Fitness and which characters. Which is hilarious because that's not actually the character that she was hired to play. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> oh my god. Before we, go, before we go into this, I would feel bad if we didn't take a moment to mention two specific people that have been left out so far. Okay. Because they'll show up shortly in the episode. First, there is Chameleon, who was a <laughs> android that the fifth doctor and crew encountered that worked for the master that the master was controlling with his mental energies that Davidson and master got into a duel over and Davidson wins Chameleon. Chameleon joins the crew. I, when I first saw it in far so as a kid in real life, I loved it. I couldn't wait for Chameleon to show up in every single episode going forward. Yep. And they said, fuck you, young Chris Spivey. We can't have Chameleon because it's too expensive for us to do, and we don't know what the fuck we were doing in the first place. And Chameleon goes away. Oh my god. And my least favorite companion out of all the companions, <sighs> Turlo. I know people like Turlo now. People have come around on Turlo. I hate Turlo. Turlo was an alien that got trapped on Earth that gets recruited by the Black Guardian to kill the Doctor! Who eventually... Turns around, the doctor says, I know that you're working for the Black Guardian, and Turlo becomes a semi-faithful companion. Always cowardly. It's cowardly cutlet. Um, no, Turlo is another one of those things where it's like, it's an interesting character. It was just done abominably. Uh, and, and it didn't age well. I mean, because like, they did a version of Turlo in the new series, um, and they did which, what is logical, which is you bring him on board, you realize he's a problem, and you boot him out the door the next episode. And that's kind of what happened with uh, Alex. Alex? Adam? I don't Adam. Adam. Adam in uh, Ninth Doctor. He was basically their Turlo, but it's like this is the logical arc of a Turlo character, which is one episode, not two seasons. <laughs> yeah. 
So I felt that we need to mention those companions before we move on, because that yeah. those were all the companions during Davison's run on air, not in other media. Weirdly, given how we've done this, it was also the first time on genres we've seen the Anthony Ainley master. Yeah, that's right, because we skipped <laughs> Legopolis that I almost picked. I know, I know. But yeah, it's like I had to say, oh yeah, this is the first time we as this podcast have seen Anthony Ainley. I have mixed feelings about Anthony Lee's uh, master portrayal, but what you, the five seconds you see of him is basically him in a nutshell, which is kind of screaming at the screen and looking like a knockoff Robert Delgado. We can hold off on him because yes. he shows he's up. Coming in future. He does coming. He's in coming in the future, future, but he's not there yet. <clears throat> no. So there you go, people. We're going to sit down. We're going to talk about time in the Ronnie. Which if you know any if you know anything, that's not even the episode where he's used off on it. So that that is right. a, a Doctor Who joke just for us. I could tell you about the time the Master of the Ronnie showed up together though to uh never mind, I won't do that either. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we now at our near thirty minute marker? And you thought we had a very talk long about. synopsis that I made for this this episode. Yes, let's do this. Let's do this. Part one. The TARDIS lands on ends and drawn. I lost my ability to speak this morning. <laughs> the TARDIS lands on the planet, one of the twin planets in the Cirrus star system. While exploring, Perry and the Doctor enter some caves, and Perry stumbles into a sticky, stingy substance. The Doctor helps her get out of it, touches it, and says, hmm, it's sticky. It must be nothing. While continuing to explore, Perry asks the Doctor why he wears a stick of celery, he says it's a safety precaution. He's allergic to certain gases, and then the celery will turn purple. And she asks, does that help? He says, no, but I could eat it, so it has to be good for my teeth. And that's where it's nothing. That is where I choose to stop by this powerful wow. episode. Wow. The celery thing, the celery gag is, is so weird because it's so obviously a we're tired of fans asking this question, so we're going to give them a bullshit answer. Yep. But I think it's a perfect logical question to ask. Why do you have a stick of celery on your lapel? It seems like uh, there's, there's there's a choice that was made that I would like to know the answer to. And for all, all the guff that we gave how they wrote Perry, Perry is the only person to ask that question. And this is her having been on the screen in our time with the doctor for less than a week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think in the audio adventures, they may have expanded that out to be months now. But Well, okay. Actually... Yes, um, that, and that's actually something that, that is one of the few cases where I will actually kind of rubbish Big Finish a bit. Because one of the things I like about this episode is that, spoiler for the rest of the episode, Perry stumbling into this nest is going to kill her. But what the Doctor does through this episode changes if you know there's like, months and months and months of all the adventures between the last episode and this episode because they've been yep. traveling there for a long time they're long companions in this episode this guy barely knows her and yet does all of these things to try to save someone he barely knows and that i feel changes the tenor of this episode so i get why big finish did it they want to have these two characters together we have only one slot to put the, those adventures in i understand the reason for it but i prefer a world where the doctor make some choices based on the fact of a person he barely knows that says more about the doctor. And it shows that the choice he makes here shows how incredibly human he, a good human that he is because not yes. all humans would have done that. 
Right. And we get examples of those other people throughout the course of the episode. Is there anything else that you would like to do for that little snippet I purposely gave you so I can see the look on your face? Well, the only thing I was going to mention, I was going to mention it anyway, is I love recontextualizing things because I know at the time the whole, the doctor's allergic to gases that Patrick's, Patrick's, blah, 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 technobabble celery thing was a genuine, sincere answer. But in retrospect, I much prefer to think of this as the doctor just making bullshit up that tracks so much better if he's like, I have a piece of celery here because I'm fucking weird. And so no one's actually asked me this question before, but I've been waiting for someone to ask me this question so I can come up with this bullshit answer and just to see their face. That that feels so much more like the doctor to me. An aside, much how there'll be many asides in this episode. Can I tell you that if I was going to assassinate the doctor, what I would use? Gases in the praxis range? <laughs> no, I would use fucking poison. Because the third doctor <laughs> dies of spider poison. The fifth doctor dies of poison. So obviously the doctor is incredibly susceptible to poison. Hands down. Really? Every single time. Either poison or apparently uh, a water tower. <laughs> Those are harder to come by, though. Are they really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'll stop fucking yeah. around. Well, that's a lie. <laughs> a squad of soldiers capture the duo as they discover a horde of weapons. They're taken into custody and sent to General Cheklik and Major Salatine. And they're questioned. They convince them. They convince the two officers that they're innocent. But a call from Morgus from Anadron. Ah, I can't even say it anymore this morning. <laughs> All right. Pronounce it for me. I've lost my, 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 Andrazani. my flow. <laughs> Thank you. Andrazani, Major a robber baron who demands to see the prisoners. After seeing them, he loses all interest in orders or execution. Uh, deeper into the Dig Dug caves, we see Salas Jack secretly monitoring the broadcast between Morgus and Chicklick. The masked man is captivated by Perry's beauty in a creepy stalker Phantom of the Opera-esque way, and it lingers far too long in him touching a screen. Chicklick fails to convince Morgus to spare Perry and the doctor telling the general that there could be no negotiation with traitors. In the cell, the doctor ponders what they've stepped into, noticing how Morgus lost all interest in them once he'd seen them. And his talks of fighting against android rebels. Perry comments that it hardly matters. The authorities seem hell-bent on making the two of them into scapegoats for whatever's going on. The doctor... I'm going to take a minute. Eddie, why are you, why are you editing this? I wrote this this morning at... At three, between three and three thirty this morning. I, I'm editing because you, you spelled "apologizes" in the British way, and I find that amusing. But I've changed it to the American way. <laughs> so yes, I. So face people are curious. This entire synopsis I wrote, I wrote and someone stole from the internet at about thirty in thirty minutes this morning at three a.m. for me. <laughs> and Eddie, the dedicated <laughs> professional he is, can't help himself but edit. I didn't edit it. I put it up there and I left it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Behind the scenes, back to the thing. The doctor apologizes to Perry. Chris does not apologize to Eddie for getting them into this mess, telling her that curiosity has always seemed to be his downfall. Perry comments that the rash on her legs is developing blisters, and the doctor believes the substance is highly toxic and not nothing how he said previously. And that's where mm -hmm. we're pausing. Okay. Uh, so uh, the corporate guy, Robert Barron, jerk 
uh, what was his name again? I don't even remember. Morgus. Morgus. Thank you. With his Shakespearean soliloquies, which I want to take a moment before you make something yeah, yeah. pertinent, is that the actor misunderstood part of the script and started doing this asides, how they do in Shakespeare. And the director, whose name I forgot again already, because I've been didn't sleep last night. Graham Harper. Thank you. Harper. So there's two different versions. There's one that Harper liked it so much that it added a layer of complexity to the script that he kept it in. The other one is that they didn't have time to reshoot. So he just said, I'll just leave it in for consistency. I, I, that's what I want to talk about, because honestly, I love that part, right? It, it's very uh, House of Cards. You mentioned Shakespeare. And it adds it. it it's clearly meant that the, not to be diegetic and that no one in the world of the episode knows he's doing this but it gives gives him a slightly unhinged quality that will actually play out over the course of the serial so the audience immediately going this guy's not right he's talking to us that that's not normal and it ends up working out really well and it's it's, it's one of those little flourishes i'm like man i i really wish class doctor who did more of this stuff because it's actually a genuinely neat little bit going on here so so whether it's accidental or intentional point is it actually adds a nice little bit of flavor to this whole serial and 100 percent. how did you like the interaction though between the general and morgus i felt like it was i felt like they were they were reaching for this kind of contentious relationship thing and this doesn't quite doesn't quite pan off on screen. I'm not sure what's wrong with it. I I, I feel like uh, Chellock should have been more disgruntled by it because all the text does that. But they're kind of it, it comes across like more eye rolling, like uh this guy. Which I don't know. I, I feel like there's a layer that was maybe missing in that. But there's so much else going on that I think it just gets swallowed by the literally turning and talking to the camera. That kind of will dwarf any subtle acting that's going on here. I think for me, part of it is you have trying to portray a general who is still somewhat world weary, but still in the fight for the fight's sake because he cares about his rank. And compared to the corporate overlord who seems to like control everything, like even the president, pretty much the army. And I use the word army very loosely here once again, because I know I know you're going to say that they are, in fact, the army because it's in the script. I'm going to ask you to look at these motherfuckers and see them in their little mighty hard hats and their jumpsuits and their Uzis. Like, that's it. I, I, I'm having a problem. And now that I have been fully in the military coming here and seeing not even like the faintest whiff of putting any money towards making them appear to be a military unit. Zero. Uh, uh, so, so two things. One, I was amused by the fact that all of the uniforms have slightly different rotations of the star trek uniform colors all of them are have a, a red yellow or blue stripe which weirdly anticipates the enterprise series uniforms <laughs> <laughs> in a way that i was just like okay that's unintentionally funny i'm sure it was meant to be a star trek gag but it's unintentionally funny to me <laughs> but the other is that from a certain perspective if you look at it from the perspective of it is about a corporation using its military assets and leverage to try to gain benefit at the expense of an underclass who are trying to use whatever technological advantages they have uh, in ways that were not 
and the original intention of them, you can make an argument this is cyberpunk. I like that. It still doesn't resolve my problem, but I do like that. Well, I mean, in the sense that if you can imagine a corporate focus group and how they would redesign a military to be more corporate friendly and part of their overall brands, then the look maybe makes a little more sense. Okay. I, I will I'll let go. It, it is not the main reason that we're here is to, for Chris to harp on fake science fiction military outfits and so forth. I, I'm, I will kind of, say, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you're not more mad about the very obviously 1985 Uzis that are supposed to be super space guns. <laughs> I am, but I would be, but we're, we established early on that they are like the five planets. So that already infers a lower degree of technology that they're going to have compared to other places. Cause we are mm -hmm. the five planets in the system. So this is all we are. So that limits mm -hmm. your advancement of their technology. Otherwise they'd go off into further galaxies. So I'm more mm -hmm. accepting of their them using like physical ammunition for their weapons. And the Uzis, I went back and forth, but I headcanoned it that you're in mines and tunnels. You don't necessarily need a weapon that has a very long range because mines sort of arc and tunnel all mm -hmm. throughout. So Uzis, you get more bullets, shorter range. You can hit more targets. And if you're fighting androids, androids aren't ducking and dodging. They're standing there to be shot. Fair, fair. All right. That That is the game designer in me thinking of the penalties associated <laughs> with using a rifle in a confined space. It's like, that's not going to work. But an Uzi, better than a pistol because you get more bullets out. And it's the whole thing. Right. And also the doctor apologizing is like, uh, curiosity, he speeds downfall. It's like, that that tracks. That, that That's not wrong. <laughs> it's almost my quote is what that was. Yeah. All right. I got it. I got to do it. So Jack, the actor who plays Jack, originally came in and auditioned to be Salatine. Really? And that would have ruined this entire episode. I, I The actor that's doing Salatine does great face work as an android when you discover who he is with the eyebrow and the looks mm -hmm. and everything else. But the energy that the actor brings for Jack could not be replicated. You need that across the board to make his creepy Phantom of the Opera work. Right, because you, you have to act that mask, right? And you get a really... And, you have, and that mask covers most of his face, so you've got almost no facial expression to work with except for your jaw. So, giving major kudos before we get into the very big creep factor that's going to become a reoccurring. Well, actually, so actually, uh, that's a good point. You mentioned earlier that uh, Jack has uh, like super long, creepy, lingering uh, face touching with, with with Perry. And what, what's what's this is a bit of future knowledge thing, but what's frustrating with the future knowledge is that in in this episode, you're right. It's very Phantom of the Opera, very much uh, someone who's um, obsessed stalker who's trying to basically acquire Perry's property and very much firmly positions that there are no good people in this except for maybe uh, the general. Um, but there's just, you know, basically no, there's no real good side to this. That's actually a really interesting, compelling story. The problem is, is that that's how Perry gets treated by literally everyone she comes across going forward. And that, so Perry just becomes the person for the protagonist Luke to fondle and that gets frustrating real damn fast. Especially her end, what happens to her, which yeah. we're not we're not there yet, so we're not gonna talk about it. Yeah. And I know that Tales of the Tardis tried to retcon it, but Yeah, yeah, there's no getting out of that. Yeah. Uh meanwhile, in his secret underground lair, 
Jack keeps the military base under close surveillance through hidden cameras, looking at the doctor and Perry in their cell and the soldiers preparing for their execution. He starts issuing orders to androids in the cell. The doctor's thoughts turn to Spectrox, which both the general and Morgus were discussing during the interrogation. He wonders, what is it? Why Morgus named it the most valuable substance in the universe, Spice Melange? Perry asks if he <laughs> really doesn't know, and the doctor answers that even his knowledge is not limitless. As they talk, a secret door in the back of the cell slowly opens and a figure steps inside. On Adrizani Major, Morgus reveals the full Spectros crisis to the president. Spectros is a powerful drug produced from the mind's in, from the bats on Edrizani Minor. It is the only known substance that can extend the life, extends one's life, and keep them youthful. The Spectroc mines are controlled by Morgus, but the operation is threatened by Jack and his army of androids, causing public tension on Andrizani Major over their very limited supplies. Morg Morgus gives the president his dose of the drugs. And as he leaves, oh, sorry, I was moving ahead of myself. I'm too excited for a scene I really like. As Morgus <laughs> and the president watch on the monitor, the doctor and Perry are brought to the execution squad draped in red. And they ask the doctor and Perry any last comments. And very stoically for the doctor, he sort of nods no. And they're shot down, killed, dead. Eddie, that is the end of the episode. They've killed the doctor. They've killed Perry. I cannot wait for his regeneration. Next part two into Colin Baker. Right. Yes, exactly. What's really frustrating about that, too, is also this is Perry, one of the Perry's most badass lines, right? Because just get on with it. And I was like, wow, there's some there's some fire in there. And then we'll find out in a minute that 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 doesn't work. Said. I hate I hate and I love Jack all at once there. You know me well enough by now to know that if there is a supervillain out there. I am bound to be inclined to like that mass supervillain in their shen in their shenanigans. Yeah, and I love it. I view Jack almost more as a Reed Richards type. Oh God, here we go! <sighs> a creepy genius that's bad with women. That's it. I'm going to stop right there. I I could make a whole other thing. What? Poor Sue Richards. I, I was I was about to say it's like I I'm surprised you're not saying it's Tony Stark. No, no. Today's Reed because this is definitely more Reed than Tony. Like, regardless of what I may think of Tony Stark, I would go and have a party with Tony Stark. That is a good time waiting to happen. Silas Jack would capture you, imprison you, stare at you and your beauty, and make you play chess all night and give you like warm milk. That is a that's, Reed Richards move. That's Doctor Doom. What are you talking about? Could be a little bit of both. Doctor, okay. Doctor Doom is so obsessed with his mom that he literally has yearly sojourns into hell to try to reclaim her soul do you understand how much willpower and awesomeness that is though no but the one thing is like i could even go so far as okay i'll make one attempt to get my mother's soul back from hell that didn't work no no it's a, it's his field trip and oh, it, oh look it's it's go to hell o'clock it's time to get the band back together maybe i'll ask dr strange to help me out this time come on buddy let it go don't be fooled by Jack's doom bots. It is a Reed Richards because Reed Richards is all right. Reed is horrible with people. He believes his genius and he tries to hide his genius to some extent, but horrible with people, horrible business person. Now Jack is a horrible business person. I can name five or six other things, but to give you doom is a maniacal charismatic and 
powerful person, like power across the board. Jack does not radiate power across the board. Desperation. Read desperation. Yeah, I agree to disagree on this point. Because you're a big fan of the Fantastic Four. I, I am a huge fan of Fantastic Four. I, I'm not I'm not saying what you're saying about Reed Richards is entirely wrong. I'm just saying that if we're going to map to anyone in that comic book, Doctor Doom still checks way more of the boxes. It, I will give you, if Doom is written how he frequently is, yes. If Doom is written properly, no. Sure. But, you know, I mean, he literally has androids that take the place of people and replace them with other people. I'm not going to tell you. Don't be fooled by the Doom bots. Doom bots. Doom bots. The Maker. That is this version of Reed Richards, The Maker. No, because even The Maker outgrew the androids thing real fast. This, this guy's going to... This guy's android ride or die. <laughs> Everything can be solved with robots. Everything can be solved with robots. I'm going to let it go. All right. So probably not the direction people expected that conversation to go. But no, I mean... The Spectrox thing, again, this is just pure Robert Holmes, right? It's like, um, I'm mad at capitalism, and not only is this thing super powerful and useful, this MacGuffin that doesn't need a backstory, I'm a good backstory about how it makes old white people even more older and somehow whiter, and be angry about that. And it's like, God damn it, Robert Holmes. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> so the one thing... No, that happens later. I won't mention that here either. Like, I think part two has a lot of the really good, good juice that I like. Spectrox. Oh. So I, I make my spice joke very intensely because it does feel like Robert Holmes may have been reading Dune when he decided oh, sure. to write this. Absolutely. Absolutely. But in nowhere, nowhere in any of my readings that I see any credit given to Dune as being any inspiration for this episode, which Chris, it should be. Chris, Chris. I, this is this is the same man who wrote about a time lord who had his body put back together and his brain was stuck in a jar. And I didn't see Frankenstein anywhere in the credits of that of of Brady Morbius. <laughs> Robert Holmes is great, but also is not shy about lifting from other things because he thought he was writing disposable television. It's like no one care about this stuff. There's no way two people across the Atlantic will be analyzing this stuff forty years later. <laughs> <laughs> the friendly relationship between Morgus and the president is still scarily reminiscent to how things operate today. Mm -hmm. And that is disturbing to even see it on the screen then and know how it applies to current day. Right. Which is one of the reasons why I like Robert Holmes as a writer is because he's writing stuff at the time. Even his colleagues were like, he's a, bit much and he's got this you know he's, he's a bit radical and then now you look at now it's like no he was he was right robert holmes was just right <laughs> anything else about part one is it appears that i really want to move on to part two yeah let's, let's just go let's go to where you want to talk let's go what's good your joy is <laughs> after the execution the president tells morgus that the people are not going to want to wait for spectrox especially considering most of them are unemployed morgus suggests anyone without a valid work permit should be sent to the eastern labor camps to reduce oh crime the God. president points out to morgus Mor points out morgus is in the closing plants in the west which is why so many people are unemployed and opening them in the east means the same people will be working for morgus again but this time without pay morgus innocently claims that he never thought of that and the president scoffs and leaves the doctor and perry were rescued by jack 
who prepared Android duplicants within moments to take their place in the execution. They are taken to his base and become his companions in exile. The general and Salatine discover the Android deception and cover it up. Jack explains that Perry and the doctor will stay with him forever as he strokes, tries to stroke Perry's cheek. That's where I'm stopping that right there. Is Morgan Jeff Bezos? <laughs> wow. I mean, because that whole scene, right? Again, like this is just... Robert Holmes didn't have to go into this route. I mean, it could have just been like, you know, evil dude, talk to other evil dudes. We've seen the execution. Here's my stuff. Cool. Great. Now, this whole subplot that actually doesn't really contribute much to the overall story just to reinforce that morgus is a manipulative robber baron if you will but the the world that it sets up is like yeah this guy just shut down a bunch of factories put people out of work and then rehired them for no pay by having the government support his own initiatives is deeply deeply concerning in the era of social media or huge monopolies because this shit not this exact shit but certainly this kind of government corporate relationship is very much thing that happens today and you said evil guys the president isn't evil i would say corrupt more so than evil but morgus is a straight-up villain we have that like hands down the and president we get that is immediately at, throughout the president the president is that best a collaborator in this yeah but you have the fact that he acknowledges what they've all seen Morgus doing and says they will take that under suggestion, which then makes you think that maybe they won't do anything. But at the end of the day, you know that the government will, of course, agree to what Morgus wants because they want the Spectrox, which is the drug that everyone's addicted to. And Morgus is his supplier. Right. Yeah, that's the other thing that is. Nowhere in the episodes anyone say this is a drug, but it's very obviously a drug, um, which is a whole other level on it that, that doesn't get talked about a whole much. Is like Spectrox is not physically addictive, but it's obviously psychologically addictive. Well, if I and I think they said the president was like what fifty or sixty in this episode. Yeah. The thing though is that who I think we even touched a little bit somewhat on this in almost Watchmen to like. If there was something that could either give you good memories or extend your life, why would you not want to take it? And it becomes sort of sure. a thing that if it would make me be like how I am now for the next hundred years, sign me up for it is what a lot of people do. And they're mm -hmm. willing to do almost anything for that high because they're junkies. I'm calling all these old white motherfuckers junkies because they are. And I am surprised they let Robert Holmes put this on the air. I'm well, okay, I, I am and I'm not for two reasons. Um, I, I'm surprised it got through the BBC. I'm not surprised after we put it in the air, A, because this is what Robert Holmes does. If you hire Robert Holmes, you're going to get a, an angry man, angry liberal, yelling at angry liberal things. But also, they didn't have time. <laughs> it's like, here's the script and we're going to film it now. We don't have time to, to adjust because of sensibilities. Like, we just got to make this happen. Is, is are, are people... Is there blood on the screen? No, cool. We get past the censors. We're just moving on. They, and I think the reason why the BBC let it go is because BBC, Doctor Who's its best in the classic era when the BBC doesn't care what's going on in the show. When the BBC cares about Doctor Who, 
it gets it gets uh, reduced and it changes and in ways that are not always to its benefit. When people are like, it's Doctor Who, we don't care, is when some of the teeth come out and it gets really interesting, which is why I get so goddamn mad when people are like, I can't believe Doctor Who's gotten so liberal. No, th- watch Caves of Andrews on It's always been this <laughs> way, man. <laughs> and for me, like what they're doing right now, Sansy total lack of diversity in this episode is what science yeah. fiction should be doing. Like it's, it's pushing a boundary. It's doing things even now as we're talking about it and I'm getting so excited is because it's bringing up relevant topics, even mm-hmm. what 40, 50 years later to society that hasn't changed. Right. <laughs> that's right. staggering to know. And, and I think that's, what's frustrating. Uh, when we go back to Davison saying he wish he had more scripts like this. I think that this is part of it is that much of Davison's run didn't have this kind of teeth to it, really. It was kind of by the numbers, space pew pew kind of scripts. And you only see these kinds of interesting edges very late in the game. So I could see Davison's maybe a frustration with this. Like, I would love to have something that has a little more meat to it like this. But again, a lot of this meat is not necessarily in the doctor's hands, but it's still present. And to that point, and when I specifically say that this is not one of my favorite doctor Who episodes is because much like the first indiana jones movie the doctor and perry are irrelevant and everything they do does not really move or impact the plot that much there's one point where that is not true which mm-hmm. is we'll come to another later episode but on the yep. whole their journey does not change most of this world and arguably that is a if you consider that a weakness I, I'm, on, I'm on the fence, but I'm not going to argue the point. Um, but that is a lot of Robert Holmes' scripts, right? I mean, the Doctor is kind of just the way into this world that Robert Holmes wants to inhabit. And he is cynicism of even the best people in the world can't really meaningfully change the system is going to always come out of his scripts. Um, so a lot of his – I mean, look at the two Doctors. Uh, we, we're not there yet, but um, I just remembered there is one more Robert Holmes script. Uh, the two Doctors uh, is bleak. Yeah. It's bleak. It's it's bad in, in other ways, but it's also just very, very bleak. Even his key time stuff, it's like the doctor is kind of maybe it adjusts a few things, makes things slightly better for some people here and there, but ultimately has no meaningful impact, which is very different from a lot of other Doctor Who scripts. So, yeah, I mean, if that's the thing you want to see out of it, then you're right. This is what the doctor and Perry actually do could be boiled down to maybe a 45 minute episode. But There's I'm saying a lot of this is, because it's just the world happening around them. But specifically if it is a show where our protagonist, the doctor does nothing of note and you mm-hmm. can say that he saves Perry, but that is because they cause their own problem and they resolve their own problem. That is their journey throughout this arc. And right. that is not doctor who I would rather watch the, uh, the mortgage show. And they can have the Doctor guest star. Well, there's a difference okay. in show and what you're going for. If we're talking Doctor Who, Doctor Who needs to have a solid impact. Even if all the Doctor does is save ten people, that is a journey that he's done and accomplished something. I, I will push back. Doctor's nothing in this episode. He does cause this this Cold War to get hot. If it was not for this execution scene and the doc, what the Doctor does to to push Jack into accelerating the war, and then to go back to Chellick and to push Chellick into accelerating the war. Granted, he's doing it just to save Perry, but he pushes what had been a low slimmering conflict into basically everyone dying. That's the other thing. Everyone dies in this. We're not there yet, but everyone dies in this. I will push back on that 
because we already have the fact that the gun runners were going to start amplifying what they were doing. So the war would have accelerated. The thing that I'm saying where the doctor makes a difference that changes everything is when Morgus, this is like episode three now, but we'll get there, is when Morgus sees him aboard Stolze's ship and thinks he's a spy. That is their biggest impact in this whole thing and gets Morgus on the planet. But like otherwise, no, like the war would have accelerated faster because we already have the gun runners expediting their moves and things would have still occurred. I will, I will, I will, I will concede the fact that it probably would have gotten hot eventually. I will then just at least say that a doctor made that happen faster than it probably would have. I think we can at least agree on that middle ground. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but to your point, the overall point I think you're at dead on is that again, Robert Holmes does not see the doctor as this benign force that comes in and saves people. He sees the doctor as an anarchist uh, that upends status quos, and even then a lot of times does more damage than good. Um, in this case, his cynicism is to the point where he functionally writes Doctor Who out of his own show to a certain degree. Which is going to be something that re- that recurred a lot, well, to some extent, with Davison and also think it happens with Colin Baker next. Because like when they want the great fire that happens in London, they introduce a Shakespearean character who comes in and becomes almost like the protagonist of that show with doctor and crew, his sidekicks. And that happens right. repeatedly. Like they don't want to write for their doctor. They want to write their own character and have the doctor be there so they could have their own show. Even when Tegan comes back with the Cybermen, they have this one reoccurring guy who fights the Cybermen here. He shows up again later. And I think even she yeah. been Baker. Like, so they're having their own action hero and the doctor is just kind of there, which makes well, that uh, bad doctor who for me. But, but that brings up a really interesting point is J and T was not wrong to fire all the original. Writers. And I know this is a hot take on some level, but his instinct of, we need to get fresh writers on the show was actually well-founded. Um, how he implemented it was terrible. Uh, but his instinct was well-founded because I love Robert Holmes and I love Gabe's Manderzani. I'm not going to take that away from him, but you're right in the sense of these writers have worked on this show for over 20 years. They're starting to struggle with how do you tell fresh new Doctor Who? So they're kind of telling the same Doctor Who over and over again. And David Robert Holmes's response to that is, well, we just won't, won't write about Doctor Who anymore. This is kind of what we now would call a Doctor Light episode, but he's still not doing anything interesting with the Doctor Light concept. Well, I take it back. He is doing something interesting with the Doctor Light concept in the fact that he, the Doctor kind of ignores this entire conflict to focus on the thing that's important to him, which is I had to save this woman's life. But it that gets kind of muted and lost in the script, frankly. If the script had a few more rewrites, maybe even pull the Doctor further out of it and just go, Doctor, I don't care about this war. I'm just trying to save my friends and really dig into that emotional conflict. It could have been even stronger. But to your point, you're right. It, it's we're running into a team that's kind of just struggling to know what to do with the show. And it's, it's frustrating because there were looks back that we kind of glossed over where you had potential to go in different directions. Enlightenment. We keep, oh, frankly, we should have enlightenment, but we we'll, might do we'll a special. Sure. Huh? Might do a special. This just enlightenment because we keep talking about it. Right. Uh, but I mean, even things like Turlo, let's let's have a companion that is not trustworthy. You know, there, there's attempts to try to do and see things with it. And if you look at the new show, you can see bits of what was seeded here done better in the new version of the show because they saw, oh, here's the potential here. It's just that this team can't execute it well. 
And so we have Davison and, frankly, a pretty good cast here overall trying to salvage this script. It's like, and that script doesn't need much salvaging, but trying to bring something, a, a depth and a layer to it. Um, but you're right. There are some fundamental issues with the show. Any, uh, we, we, I, I like that one. Anything else you want to talk about this before we move on? Uh, I, I, I think we need to kind of... <laughs> We're, we're bouncing around a lot, which which is not a good sign. Um, so I think we need to kind of just plow through and get to the summary. You say it's not a good sign. I think that is a good sign that we're enjoying the conversation and the show. It's, it's well, less okay. about us really finishing the summary, but us enjoying the talk that we have about it. It's, it's not a good sign for the for the episode is more what I'm saying. Because <laughs> you, you're looking at your watch. That is your faux pas, my friend. Well, I look at watch someone contacted me because I get notifications on my watch. Well, if you want to like bring up facts, it this makes great joke. audio. Let me tell you, <laughs> I think that our listeners enjoy this banter to get to know us personally, you and I, and to know this is how we interact, even when the microphone is off. Above ground, Stoli nearly kills Kelper to keep him and the others in line due to their lack of pay and recent failure. Kelper relents, and Stolzi decides to let him live for the time being. At Jack's base, the Doctor and Perry complain of rashes and cramps where they touch the sticky substance. Jack tells him that he must have beauty as he stares longingly at Perry and enjoys intellectual sparring. And he looks at the Doctor offhandedly, but explains, Doctor, you're expendable, and if you don't shut the fuck up, I will kill you. Thanks to his monitoring equipment, he knows the Army's every move. The war against the Army is actually threatening... He has a war against the army. It's been, and he thinks it'll last another five years, by which time he's sure the people of Androzani Major will have all revolted because they want their drug and they will force the president, the president to agree to Jack's terms. And Jack's terms are very simple. He wants a head of Morgus at his feet. In Morgus's office, Triminen reports to Morgus that the copper mine has exploded, which he feigns surprise over. The re- this resolves their overproduction problem and makes the price of copper rise. Insert maniacal laughter. Uh, Morgus wants every employee to leave their place and stand in silence for a minute. Then he thinks how much it'll cost him and changes it 30 seconds. I'm stopping. Uh, so yeah, two things. Look- yes. Well, 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 those two things. The everyone saving silence for a minute thing, I actually did not realize that was a reference until extremely recently. For the Day of Remembrance uh, here in the UK, which is kind of their equivalent of Veterans Day, um, mm-hmm. my wife went into the office that day, and they did actually have everyone in the office stay silent for a minute uh, as, as part of the Day of Remembrance. So that is a direct reference to a known British thing that I was unaware of until extremely recently. So a corporation doing that and cutting down 30 seconds and talking about the feasibility of it is a slightly, is a slightly more barbed message than I think I would have seen even a mm-hmm. month ago. Right. Uh, and so certainly when I watched it, I was like, Oh, it's kind of a mildly dickish thing to do, but it's like, no, oh, I'm in 30 seconds. I thought it's a huge change, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a very specific pointed thing, which I was unaware of previously. So that was kind of neat. That's very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. But more importantly, Zarish Jack is an incel. <laughs> and this, why, why this, is that eddie because he's like i have to have this woman around and i'm mad because i can't possess her in a 
P a, a G rated television sense, but it's very clear what's, what's being applied here. And the man is only there to enlighten his conversation. And the conversation is basically straight up sea lioning, uh, which is basically, um, I'm going if you don't give me, I, I want your intellectual conversation, but if you don't agree with my viewpoints, then you're wrong. And I'm going to browbeat you until you agree with my viewpoints. And so this whole scene is basically like, I want you because you're pretty, and I want you because you agree, you're smart and agree with my viewpoints, and that is why I'll keep you in this box for And if you don't, I'm going to murder you. <laughs> I can't argue with that. I, I, I <laughs> completely agree. Like, 100%. So instead, I'll focus on Stolze, the, the lead gun runner who... I think the show is telling you he's a badass because you get to see them like sort of have their big fight and you get to also see that they have been really unsuccessful and they're not being paid. So that reinforces how important it is for them to get Jack to give them their Spectrox so they right. can go back to whoever their big supplier is. I think at this point in time, we don't know it's Morgus. It, it may be implied, implied but we don't know quite yet. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to sort of see that dynamic between them that isn't working well. So you know that there is that established an entire relationship of trouble that's been going on for a while. Yeah. And, and again, one of the uh, Holmes kind of footnotes, which I kind of like, is that there's all these different groups and none of them are completely, well, maybe Morgus completely evil, but all of them have some kind of viewpoint you can sympathize with to a certain degree. Uh, and in this case, it's like the man did his job he didn't get paid and he's mad about that i can on some level appreciate that maybe not track the guy back back to mug him and take his shit but you know <laughs> i've done freelance work that i felt was good and then it got ripped up and then i told i wasn't gonna get paid for it i can, I can certainly agree with that viewpoint i i've done freelance work that i turned in and i was told it was good and they just didn't want to pay me for it that i had then had to track them down and pull a stolzy on them Exactly, and and you you track that for, you track that client back and take all his books and burn his house down. It's it's a perfectly I, rational. I, I put a death pill in their mouth and I said, "Hey, <laughs> give me like my my thirty seven cents for writing thirty thirty thousand words because I'm a writer. That's what I make." <laughs> or else, and much like Luke Cage and that two hundred dollars from Doctor Doom, it cost me more money to get there to threaten them to get my money than it, uh, it would have cost me otherwise. Thus. Jack is Dr. Doom. Thank you for supporting my viewpoint. I wanted to give you something there because I, I was I was berating you for a while and, and everyone inside already knows it's Reed Richards, so I'm, I'm fine to give you that. In Jack's lair, the real Salatine begin, brings the prisoners food. As he's been prisoners for months, he's somewhat upset because he thinks Jack will probably kill him because he has his new companions. But then he deduces they have Spectrox poisoning and laughs in their faces, telling them they're going to die. And the doctor throws him up against the wall. It says, is there no antidote? And he says, no. Only to have minutes later to say that, yes, there is, but it's very difficult to get. It is the milk of the queen bat who is down in the bowels of the cave where there is no oxygen. And worse than that, there is a carnivorous creature that no one has lived the tale the tale of. So how do we know it exists? I don't know. Later, Jack <laughs> explains his former business partner, Morgus, betrayed him and nearly killed him. Ever since, he's tried to extract revenge. And then he leaves to have a meeting with Stolze and the Gunrunner. In Jack's headquarters, the prisoners tra trick the android guard. They escape, leading down to the lower levels. 
separated from the doctor who is grazed by a bullet and is unconscious, but wakes up after Salatine has captured Perry, forcing her away. The doctor takes covers behind a rock as Stolze and the gunman battle the magma beast bullets bouncing harmlessly off of the creature the magma beach is approaching with the doctors crouched behind a giant rock fear is in the air as a fearsome looking real life magma beast all right into part two <laughs> this is we've talked before about dumb doctor <laughs> cliffhangers oh my god this is up there one of my favorites because like this is this is some Power Rangers level of rubber monster with the madness I love. <laughs> it is so bad. Like, <laughs> like I mean, top the bottom. You almost see the zipper. It's 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 <laughs> it's so bad. Um, and it, it Peter Davison trying his damnedest to make it scary. And like, you know what? God bless you, buddy. I, I appreciate the effort, but it's and. and Jumping ahead slightly, uh, it's even it's even the best reason why this is such a great dumb Doctor cliffhanger is that the Doctor immediately rushes past the Doctor and murders everybody else, and it's like so there's <laughs> zero threat to the Doctor. It's, it's wonderful. It's sort of it, it, it's right up there with being knocked out by the Mentos for no reason and then being knocked out again immediately afterwards. That's not even the worst one. It's the fact when they meet the Mentats again, and they it ends on him meeting them, and we already know they're friendly. That is right. a cliffhanger. You've met right. your friends. Da, da, da. Right. But yeah. It's, I will not I, lie. I, I, love it. I love it. My favorite scene is when Salatine laughs that they're going to die. I don't know why yeah. that always strikes me. It's like, I'm, I, I'm doomed. Wait, you touched a ball of sticky stuff? Dead laughter. Just, you're gone. And, and, and I have seen people argue online that Salatine is, is badly written because he's so inconsistent of a character. I'm like, I completely disagree. It's like he's like I've been captured for for years, as far as we know. Months, months, he yeah, a long months. time, a long time. Um, I think I'm gonna get killed because these people show up, and then I find out they're gonna die. That laughter of relief is is pretty cathartic. I mean, he's kind of a dick. He doesn't like, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have laughed. I mean, he kind of stays in that moment for a bit, but he's like, oh my god, I'll, I'm gonna live. That's great, you know. I mean, that kind of moment of of feeling self-absorbed and worried about your own life is very real to me salatine's not a hero he's just a guy doing a job that's now been bopped over the head by an incel and replaced by an android (laughs) and now these two assholes are coming in they're gonna make sure i'm dying no way i'm gonna live cool great i don't know you people from adam i'm sorry you're gonna die but i get to live and that's great i i don't know i i like salatine in this I don't see how it's inconsistently written. Like the bits that we get of the real Salatine is literally what you've just described. Someone who's trying to do their job and get by and mm-hmm. been trapped with Jack for months. Just the two yeah. of them. That, you, that is your conversational partner. Like that's yeah. it. And who knows what else they were doing in front of the androids. Ugh. I just love it. But the, to hear that the only thing is going to be like some beast in the bowels that no one has seen or heard of or lived to tell you about makes no sense because how do you know there's a creature there? Tell me, Eddie. How do they know there's a creature there? Well, that, that, I, I love you pointing out because not only is that my favorite plot hole, but, there, but that also then if you recognize the plot hole, then it brings up additional plot hole. It's like how do you know that the Queen Bat is down there? 
because no one survived to tell you about the beast and they couldn't have survived to tell you about the bat either. <laughs> and we've seen the dig dug sensors. They're not accurate enough to give you life signs of any kind. They're right. not like, they're not like earth shock where you can see little bleeps on the screen. So you mentioned dig dug a couple of times. Uh, I have to assume as a reference to the, the phenomenal eighties computer work that's happening on the screens in this. <laughs> yes yes it is direct there's no other point for it because if you look at it it's like hey i played that level when i was eight that's <laughs> one thing again i i kind of love about this era because again this is one thing where the the production team's instincts are not wrong which is the t- computer technology has moved a long way it's relatively cheaper let's try to introduce actual computer graphics into our thing as opposed to doing hand-drawn cells it's going to be cheaper and it's going to look more authentic and it just aged almost immediately badly. And so it's like, I, I, I think I've programmed that on my Commodore 64 at one point in time. So I, I know how it got there. But by God, they tried. They tried really hard to be on the cutting edge. And they were on the cutting edge for the 17 seconds that that was cutting edge. It's also interesting to see that this is where you get confirmation that Jack and Morris were once business partners. And it reinforces, yeah. again, how unpredictable the mud bursts are on the planet. So mm-hmm. leading into like that's going to be more and more of a thing. And it's building up to that. So that's a nice piece of script writing to drop that there. And to know that whatever why he's wearing the mask is because of Morgus and he barely survived whatever that horrible scarring accident is. It does not excuse at all his obsession with beauty. No, no. But, uh, and I mean, one thing we haven't talked about yet is we're taking a long time talking about this in this long thing because this is paced really well. I mean, this, yeah. a lot happens in four episodes and, and I mean, as much stick as we're given this, it's not, it's never boring. You're it never no. drags. If anything, it's a little and, overstuffed. And one of the issues frequently with Dr. Who is that it will compensate for a lack of content with more running around in tunnels and gun violence. This mm-hmm. has a lot of that, but it also has a lot of plot and complexity on top of it right there are chunks in early doctor who where you could cut out entire scenes and lose almost none of the plot it's very hard to do that for the script are, are you almost saying that like you could take the dalek from a seven episode thing to three or maybe four <laughs> it's almost like you cut down the daleks to about an hour and a half yeah cut it like <laughs> half its runtime and lose almost nothing all right well, we, we are running a little long for us do you have any additional comments no. about this all right let's go ahead part three perfect. The beast killing gunrunners and the rest of the gunrunners retreat. Now safe, Stolze, Stolze and the gunrunners encounter Jack, who laughs at them, saying, you shouldn't have tried to find my secret lair. <laughs> and they encounter the doctor, who pops almost out of nowhere from his bad hiding rock. Uh, Jack asks, why are you free? He says, you know, that's what happens. They attempt to question the doctor. Andrew almost rips his arms off. But in the end, he gives gives doctor to Stolze, who believes he's a spy. Uh, looking for pertinent parts now. Uh, Jack leaves because he needs to get Perry back because she's beautiful. Uh, realizing that the general will now know that his Salatine android is there in the army base. Perry isn't feeling well. She's also in stage three of the spectrock poisoning. While the real Salatine explains to the general about his duplicate, the pair come up with a plan to trick the android into third Jack off. They broadcast and message to Morgus telling Morgus, they're going to assault Jack's base. Meanwhile, Stoli chains a doctor in the brig of his starship and calls Morgus. Morgus sees a doctor in the back 
and deduces that the general must have lied to him and the doctor must be working for the president to spy. He tells Stolze to remain in orbit. Margaret is worried the president will see that he's also dealing guns to to Jack. Mm, I'm looking just for good stuff now because we're in a hurry. The, he arranges for the president to come and visit him. The president goes to visit Morgus. Morgus lets the president have an accident as he pushes him down an elevator shaft. <laughs> he calls in, <laughs> calls in um, Triminen and tells her that the president fell to his death and he's making his own plans to travel to Anzandrani Minor to put the situation right. The doctor escapes his bondage, takes control of the starship. Meanwhile, Jack kidnaps Perry again and takes her back to his headquarters. Perry tells him the army will attack soon. Jack says, I know I've changed the code on the belts, which I left off earlier. The reason the androids don't kill humans, specific humans, is because they have a belt coded to a certain frequency. Jack has now changed all that frequency, so the androids will shoot and kill the general when they come in. The doctor attempts to land on the planet. End of part three. Uh, I mean, there's, there's interesting stuff we can probably talk about this, but I... I can't get over the sheer hilarity of just shoving a dude down an elevator shaft. <laughs> <laughs> like, this guy has his elaborate plans. I'm going to, you know, shut down these things, and I'm the master of industry and blah, blah, blah. Oh, the president's in my way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some mafia shit and just shove him in an elevator shaft. <laughs> and, then, and then he calls in his secretary, and it's like, oh, no, the president fell down an elevator shaft. What could have po- How could this possibly have happened? I didn't push him. Please let everybody know. <laughs> and then briefly jumping ahead is super surprised when she's like i knew all along what you were doing because you're bad at your job <laughs> that that is funny but at the same time that is unbelievably realistic oh yeah no, it is there comes a point when you have privilege and power that you assume that whatever you say people will believe there is no question in your mind about it and unfortunately a lot of the time People just go along with you. Yeah, no, certainly. Like, you know, taking high classified documents to your private golf resort. And people think that's perfectly fine. That's yeah. a random example. Or causing a massive riot that nearly kills untold people in the capital. You know? Yeah. People right. people don't send you to jail for it or say you're treasonous and kill you. Yeah. But that's that's one of the things I love about this scene is because it is in, in some ways, it's perfect Doctor Who. It is that perfect balance of goofy and dark. Um, because it's it's a silly scene. He literally shoves a guy onto a slightly lower part of the floor, right? I mean, like it, it, it's no confusion <laughs> how this got filmed. There's, there's no super long thing. It's all just people describing how horrible it is. And he basically shoves an older man onto probably a pillow. And he, go, he ducks down <laughs> off camera. But it's also... This Jeff Bezos just murdered the president and <laughs> thinks he's going to get away with it. And he might, as far as we know, in episode three. Oh. All right. The only other thing I'm going to say about episode three, because we, we're a little pressed for time now, is that I want to mention Perry. I mm-hmm. want to mention Perry because they've given Perry absolutely nothing to do other than be drugged the entire episode. That that's it. That yeah. I felt bad. We haven't talked about her, and I want to want to mention her. Well, there we go. because clearly nobody cares about her. So you know. Yeah. Uh, anything else about part three before we move into part four? I, I I do 
again feel like the 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 doctor landing in air quotes the ship is a really good example of taking a Tom Baker line and making it into a Peter Davison line because again look at it now you can hear almost hear Tom Baker going well not so much land as crash kind of how he'd play that and Peter Davison taking that exact same line and playing it almost apologetically is so perfectly him because the fifth doctor's like I, I would I would love to land this ship. I really would. I mean, I would love to be here for you and land the ship. <laughs> Unfortunately, due to circumstances beyond my control, which may involve you kidnapping me, I'm going to have to crash it instead. <laughs> I love that. It's so good. <laughs> and when they threaten to shoot and kill him through the door because they can't reach him, you get the joy of him saying that, well, that's not, a, that's not really a great argument because I'm going to die anyway. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> And Baker would have done something very different. It wouldn't feel the same. And I think it would have lost the humor. It would have been more over the top, though. Yeah, it, w- it would have been just him again, like that that bombast of I'm just going to basically bludgeon you to death with charisma. Whereas with with, with Peter Davison, it gives the illusion the doctor's like, I'm trying to have a conversation here with you. It's not my fault that you're pointing <laughs> guns at me and I'm crashing the ship. I'm trying to be reasonable. <laughs> it was just so again, it, it, it's weird that you take this line. It's very clearly for Tom Baker, and it becomes so perfectly the Fifth Doctor. This is the Fifth Doctor. Is he's trying to be reasonable, and it's not his fault that you just don't understand his very reasonable argument about crashing a spaceship. All right. Anything else before part four? <laughs> nope. Let's wrap it up. The ship violently lands. Meanwhile. The general assaults Jack's base. The assault force is immediately gunned down by the androids. Uh, panic erupts in the ranks. Soldiers realize that their belts aren't working, and they open and return fire, eventually disabling all of Jack's androids, but at a very high cost of lives. The doctor, fleeing from the few gunrunners that chase after him through the somewhat now mud-blasting sands, manages to reach the caves. In the caves... The general sees Jack and chases him to his base. Once inside Jack's evil villain lair, they struggle back and forth until he rips off Jack's mask. Horrified by Jack's face, the general freezes. Jack kicks him out into the boiling mud pit. He goes to Perry. She screams at the sight of Jack's face, and Jack crawls away in a little ball and and cries in the corner. Morgus arrives on the planet. Once with the gunrunners, he sends a message to Timonen and she finds out that Timonen has betrayed him, taking over his entire company, all of his dealings, and reported him to the government. He is now penniless and a wanted man. Stolze kills the rest of his mutinous crew as Morgus and himself decide to go get the Spectrox from Jack that caused all this in the first place. The Doctor arrives in Jack's secret lair to see that Perry is dying still of poisoning, see that Jack has put his mask back on, and he leaves again to go down to the bowels to get the bat's milk. We get a big, massive battle. I'm not going to go down. I may not go down there. Eddie's editing again because he can't help himself. And I'm going to pause to put that again. I'm not editing at all. I'm just, I'm just reading it. Excuse me. A massive battle. <laughs> well, that's, that's a sign of a good person to work with in general. But I, I'm giving you stick now because it's fun for me. <laughs> Big battle roars out. In the end, Jack gets to kill Morgus. Everyone else there dies. The doctor has the milk from the bat. He picks up Perry. The two of them, 
He carries Perry back to the TARDIS. He spills a vial of TARDIS. Spill, I'm sorry, spills a vial of the milk. Inside of the TARDIS, he lays Perry down on the ground. And he feeds her the remaining of the bat milk, then collapses onto the floor of the TARDIS. Now so close to death that he's starting to doubt that he'll regenerate and says aloud, is this death? Perry recovers nearly instantly to find the doctor lying on the floor in pain. The doctor quickly explains he cured her with the bat's milk, but only had enough for her because he didn't drink it himself when he first got it. He tells Perry there's nothing she can do and he'll be going soon. It's time to say goodbye. Perry encourages him not to give up and pleads that he can't leave her now. Then he says that he might regenerate, but doesn't know for certain that he'll be able to because the process feels different this time. And I'm pausing there. Anything you want to say about all of that before we do the next bit? Yeah. Did I mention <laughs> that the doctor didn't drink the milk when he first got it for himself or that he didn't pull a Luke Skywalker and just drink directly from the bat's teat? Well, I mean, that actually points towards my kind of frustration with this is that the reason why this last scene happens is because it's a regeneration story. It's I did and will continue to laud that the doctor giving Perry the milk and not saving himself very much, especially for a woman he barely knows, very much tells you to his character and one of the strengths of the fifth doctor that 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 kind of quiet heroism is something that I always like about the fifth doctor and I appreciate that. But it is such a contrived way to get to that moment that it's like if this had been a normal episode it would have been like oh i got the mech built we're all safe now let's go off in the tardis it would have been actually better but let's see no we have to inject random drama here i I dropped the milk and there's only enough for you first of all you don't know how much at no point time was dosage discussed you have (laughs) no clue how much you need right you're just assuming so that's one thing second of all in all of your pockets you don't have a stopper to put in the end of the little tube. <laughs> but three, you're right. It's like, grab maybe, I don't know, four or five vials in case you drop one because you have to carry a woman. And that, that's the other thing that's frustrating is it's clear that Peter's struggling to hold her up the whole scene. It's like, he's like, I can't, I can't carry this girl, guys. You know, but that's the scene. All right, I'll make it work. That was, that was acting because he's poisoned. That's what it was. Is that what it was? Okay. That, and that's why they... After 10 seconds that they cut away to a shoulder shot to him so that he doesn't have to carry her anymore. <laughs> God. It is so... All right. Before the regeneration scene, is there anything else about the stuff up top you'd like to talk about? I, I, I sped through the last parts because we are running long for us. Yeah. Uh, like a, I like every say, single week. I've I, I talked a lot about how it's aged well, but Robert Holmes will not. There's one area that's aged really badly, which is the straight-up ableism of Jack, um, which is that he's ugly and therefore evil, and everyone looks at him, is immediately horrified. I get it. That's the Phantom of the Opera trope. I get what they're going for. It still sucks. It's still not good. I still don't like it. And, and the fact that, like, oh, I am scarred on my face, and therefore I can't possibly survive. The reason why... Doctor Doom works, which is the exact same arc, because they're the same character, is that Doctor Doom's quote-unquote disfigurement is literally just a small scar on his face, and he's so vain that he then wraps himself in armor and whatnot. That says more about Doom's character, and you go, oh, it's just 
it's just a little scar on your face. And then you put this molten mask on and you make yourself into that thing <laughs> you think you really are. That's because you're an egomaniac and a sociopath. <laughs> but this is the, the rest of the world's like, oh my God, you're horrible. Yeah, you should live undergrounds. How you can't possibly be in civilized society. It's like, oh, really? You know yeah, who it that, is? That, that, that bugs me. The mole man? Yes, yes, yes. That's where I was about to go with the next joke. <laughs> We've been doing this too long now. I can't even make my jokes anymore because you already know my punchlines. Fox. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll, 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 I will, I will subsume my genius enough so that you don't feel bad. Like Reed Richards. <laughs> <laughs> so, I the entire ending is so contrived like this entire part four episode feels like robert holmes said fuck i made all this other great stuff how am i going to wrap this up the script's due tomorrow let's just have everybody show up on the planet together and get killed yeah and literally everybody dies except for perry and trimmon everybody everybody no, yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> Tim, Timon is the only other person to alive i will say everyone but anyway, right timmon does actually survive but yeah everyone else dies I don't. I don't think that's him going. Fuck! I don't want to end it because that's a lot of Robert Holmes scripts of a high body count. I think it's just his thing at this point. But certainly the the speed at which they are dispatched is a bit disconcerting at the end. Yes. And I say I stick with my. He said, "Fuck it," is because we know that the mud bursts were not supposed to have been that powerful so quickly at this point in time. Because they mentioned them before, they're supposed to have been uh, at least a true. year or two away, and suddenly they went whole planet mud burst. That's the whole true. planet? All the tunnels? Jack was going to fight a war here for like five more years. What What are we doing? Everybody. No, that's true. That's true. It's kind of the... Uh, th- th- there's kind of vibes of... And then they all died. Rocks fall. Yeah. Anything else about that before I do this last bit? Do we have to? No, let's do it. We got to. That's what yeah, we do. All right. All right. A bright glow surrounds the doctor as his image distorts. He begins hallucinating his previous companions, urging him to live, telling him the universe still needs him. He particularly is affected by a vision of someone who died. His final word is Adric. A vision of the Tremus Master appears, laughing at the doctor, saying, Die, doctor! Die, doctor! The vision of his companions begin to swirl, all of their voices overlapping together. As the vision subside all at once in a fade, to reveal the doctor's new incarnation, a man with a sharp gaze and curly blonde hair. Perry moves towards regenerated doctor and dresses him by name. The doctor now sits up, fully alert, challenging his now detoxified assistant with the words, you were expecting someone else? Speechless, she trips, I, I, I. He ironically skulls her. That's three eyes in one breath. That makes you sound a rather egotistical young lady. Perry asks what happened. He grandly declares, change, my dear. It seems not a moment too soon. Staring forward at the camera with a big-ass grin is Colin motherfucking still the televised version, not at all a doctor that I like, Baker. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hate it. I hate everything about it. I hate yep, yep, yep. the obvious framing of Perry's tits in his face. I hate the fact that the first thing he does upon regeneration is to talk shit to his companion uh, and his previous self. I hate the 
random thing about, oh, it feels different this time, and that campaign is urging me to live, that just goes nowhere. It's ugh, one of my least favorite regeneration scenes. And somewhat it's a riff on Tom Baker's when you had all the companions surrounding him after he fell out of the water tower. But uh, see, the Tom and Baker they're trying one is different to play because, on it. yeah, but Logopolis was about, Earned? yes, because the whole story was about the, 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 the lingering specter of death. It's like, you know, the whole time that something's going to have horrible happen to the doctor and we know what's going on. And it's like, actually, arguably the whole season leading up to that. But certainly that last serial, it's about something horrible is going to happen and it's earns and the, 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 the lingering on his life before it changes. And even then Peter Davidson doesn't immediately talk shit about Tom Baker. Right. It, it, it's, it's the, you know, he, he's struggling to come to terms with it. This just feels like such a smack in the face to, to the fifth doctor and to Davison. And it's, it's, it's in the TARDIS console room, which is like, okay, it's a convenient set, but like at least Logopolis is on location. Again, the way it's framed, like if you look at the differences, like it's it's framed on Tom Baker's face in his one, where it's again, this one's cropped to where you can see Perry in the shot, and it's very clear what they're trying to try and draw your attention to. Mm. I, I'm in utter agreement. I hate this regeneration. I hate this entire last final scene. And it could also be one of the reasons why I do not enjoy this episode as much. And I liked, I like Peter Davison's doctor. Mm -hmm. I like the human nature of him. I like the fact he was trying to be more human, but still at the same time felt alien an alien trying to be human, engaging with people that he constantly struggled to even have the most, the smallest success was an accomplishment for him. And that was good storytelling. That is a choice that they made and then they realized that it wasn't working and they sort of shoved all the blame on Davison. Yep. It, this is what it feels like. And then to even add kudos on, to add to that, they had the next version of him show up during his run, insult his entire run and people that yep. may have watched and enjoyed it to then end. And we don't have him in the credits, how he should be listed first because he did all of this. And instead yep. we get Colin Baker first and then Peter Davison as he's an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a kick in the dick to Peter Davidson. And what's really frustrating is you can't lop it off. I mean, like, obviously you can't lop it off because it's television exists. But like there's a lot of these stories where it's like if you just kind of stop for the ending, you can have a pretty satisfying story. His sacrifice is what makes this whole kind of story work. It's just that his sacrifice is then immediately like kind of let's celebrate the new guy like, like can we can we have a moment to talk about how cool the last guy was we don't and we don't we, there's no room to breathe and perry the person that he saved to sacrifice himself for is immediately insulted so everything that was done over those four episodes is just undone in like two minutes and it, it's breathtakingly terrible and the twin dilemma that follows it is horrible and its treatment of Perry right away is disgusting. Right. I mean, let's, let's, let's talk about so people don't have to watch it. If you look up anything online about twin dilemma, you'll get the, the main reference is the fact that he strangles Perry and the, the arguments 
is that, well, it's because he's pushed into trauma, blah, blah, blah. No, what, what happens is basically uh, Perry is now almost immediately in an abusive relationship where he physically abuses her and she excuses it. And that is the episode and it's fucking garbage. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to talk anymore about the Sixth Doctor. Because no, I just want to talk about, I just want to say, if, if you're tempted to watch Twin Dilemma, please save yourself. <laughs> Eddie, any final thoughts on the run of the Fifth Doctor? The whole run. Yeah, the run, um, as I mentioned last episode, uh, for a long time, he was not one of my favorite doctors. It is a, a doctor that I have grown to appreciate more over time as I've gotten older. Uh, um, you mentioned that you loved him right off the bat, and I, I kind of jealous of that because it took me a long time to warm to him. But now that I have, he's one of my favorite go-to doctors because, yes, the quality of the show is demonstrably going down during his run. But if you take an, a random story of the Fifth Doctor, I always find something to love in it. Uh, yes, you know, time flight exists, and I recognize that. You know, yes, there are a lot of extremely dodgy stories in there. But even if I'm enjoying it ironically or enjoying it for unintentional things, if nothing else, Peter Davison is always a delight to watch in everyone. Even if he's got a garbage script, he's trying his best to save it. And he's genuinely fun to watch. It's a very different fun from Tom Baker, and I recognize that. Tom Baker is just gobsmackingly watchable. But Peter Davison is entertaining to watch because he's always doing something interesting. And uh, there's there's such a – you said it before, a humanity this doctor, even though he's in a lot of ways the most alien of the doctors, he's also the most human, and that is really warming. He, he cares about his companions in a way that just none of the other doctors really do, and it takes several doctors before it happens again, honestly. So, the, so there's just a, a a warmth and a depth there that it took me a long time to appreciate, and I'm glad now that I do. I don't think that I can add a lot more to that, and I'm not gonna other than to say that before the new who stuff came out, if anyone ever asked my doctors were the seventh and fifth doctor, those are my two doctors mm-hmm. at all times because the dynamic that Davison brought that duality of how he portrayed the role is phenomenal to watch. And while I would never want to be one of Davidson's companions because that would be, <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> I loved watching it and it was thoroughly watchable. Even the horror that is Time Flight and Black Orchard. <laughs> um, but there were yeah. gems in there, like Kinda, Enlightenment are like two that just shine unbelievably well. Yeah. They all have problems. There, and like I said before, there are very few that are unambiguously classics. I think we say Caves of Noise is ambiguously classic. But it's just good, decent television. It's just fun television. And that's not bad. Eddie, do you, do you have any any closing quotes from The Fifth Doctor or anything you'd like to chip comment? I do. One of my favorite kind of, I'm trying to be reasonable and I'm exasperated with you, <laughs> Fifth Doctor quotes. Oh, marvelous. You're going to kill me. What a finely tuned response to the situation. <laughs> <laughs> if people are looking to get some of your sweet, sweet swag or contact you online, where could they do that? You can find me most everywhere as Pugsteady. That's my website. That's my social media accounts. And uh, recently, that's also my Patreon. 
Um, so if you're interested in getting short stories about uh, dogs in a future fantasy world, I'm going to start putting that stuff out on a consistent basis. Don't hold me to that, but some, some more frequently than I do now, which is never. <laughs> but yeah, so Pugsteady, P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y, that's where you'll find me online or the Dark Hue Discord. Uh, if you're looking to support me, you can do so at the Darker Hue Patreon. It's uh, Harlemon Bounders Chris Spivey. Or if you want, you can now go over to Roll20 that I haven't talked about in a while because Honet West is on Roll20. And oh, I actually nice. recently dropped the cost of the core book on Roll20. Nice. In case people want to get it, game it. And if anyone actually does go and start doing actual plays of it, I will promote you on all of my social media accounts and my dozens of followers would likely give you applause. Uh, if you're looking to talk to me, you can uh, do so in the Darker Hue Discord. Otherwise, uh, Eddie, what are we what, what are we covering next time? Are we going to finally do the Twin Dilemma, the one that we've told people not no. to watch? No, hell Damn no. Right. I like you people too much. Uh, no, we're going to go to a story that I'm willing to defend to a certain amount, so it'll be an interesting conversation. <laughs> Vengeance of Varos, which is I said before that you could argue, Kings and Johnny is cyberpunk. This is them trying to cyberpunk and missing but how they miss is interesting so we're going to talk about that and that is four episodes of his early parry run so it's probably the most watchable of that run and again i'm gonna slash have watched the tales of the tardis version uh so but you're not missing much it's just kind of edited together into a 90 minute thing as opposed to four separate episodes are you going to also tell us about eric sayer next time eddie I guess I have to now because because that's that's the life I I lead. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I guess next time we will see you as we uh, get some revenge on Varos. Richards. <laughs>